Chapter Twenty Five of Son of Tarzan. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Son of Tarzan by Edgar Rice Burroughs. Chapter Twenty Five. The sheik glowered at the prisoner which his two men brought back to him from the north. He had sent the party after Abdul Kamak, and he was wroth that instead of his erstwhile lieutenant they had sent back a wounded and useless Englishman. Why had they not dispatched him where they had found him? He was some penniless beggar of a trader who had wandered from his own district and became lost. He was worthless. The sheik scowled terribly upon him. "'Who are you?' he asked in French. "'I am the Honorable Morrison Baines of London,' replied his prisoner. The title sounded promising, and at once the wily old robber had visions of ransom. His intentions, if not his attitude toward the prisoner, underwent a change. He would investigate further. "'What were you doing poaching in my country?' growled he. "'I was not aware that you owned Africa,' replied the Honorable Morrison. "'I was searching for a young woman who had been abducted from the home of a friend. The abductor wounded me, and I drifted down river in a canoe. I was on my way back to his camp when your men seized me.' "'A young woman?' asked the sheik. "'Is that she?' and he pointed to his left over toward a clump of bushes near the stockade. Baines looked in the direction indicated, and his eyes went wide, for there, sitting cross-legged upon the ground, her back toward them, was Miriam. "'Miriam!' he shouted, starting toward her, but one of his guards grasped his arm and jerked him back. The girl leaped to her feet and turned toward him as she heard her name. "'Morrison!' she cried. "'Be still and stay where you are,' snapped the sheik and then to Baines, "'So you are the dog of a Christian who stole my daughter from me?' "'Your daughter?' ejaculated Baines. "'She is your daughter?' "'She is my daughter,' growled the Arab, "'and she is not for any unbeliever. You have earned death, Englishman, but if you can pay for your life I will give it to you.' Baines' eyes were still wide at the unexpected sight of Miriam here in the camp of the Arab, when he had thought her in Hanson's power." What had happened? How had she escaped the Swede? Had the Arab taken her by force from him? Or had she escaped and come voluntarily back to the protection of the man who called her daughter? He would have given much for a word with her. If she was safe here, he might only harm her by antagonizing the Arab in an attempt to take her away and return her to her English friends. No longer did the Honorable Morrison harbor thoughts of luring the girl to London. "'Well?' asked the sheik. "'Oh!' exclaimed Baines. "'I beg your pardon. "'I was thinking of something else. "'Why, yes, of course, glad to pay, I'm sure. "'How much do you think I'm worth?' The sheik named a sum that was rather less exorbitant than the Honorable Morrison had anticipated. The latter nodded his head in token of his entire willingness to pay. He would have promised a sum far beyond his resources just as readily, for he had no intention of paying anything. His one reason for seeming to comply with the sheet's demands was that the wait for the coming of the ransom money would give him the time and the opportunity to free Miriam if he found that she wished to be freed. The Arab's statement that he was her father naturally raised the question in the Honorable Morrison's mind as to precisely what the girl's attitude toward escape might be. 
It seemed, of course, preposterous that this fair and beautiful young woman should prefer to remain in the filthy douar of an illiterate old Arab rather than return to the comforts, luxuries, and congenial associations of the hospitable African bungalow from which the Honorable Morrison had tricked her. The man flushed at the thought of his duplicity, which these recollections aroused, thoughts which were interrupted by the sheik, who instructed the Honorable Morrison to write a letter to the British consul at Algiers, dictating the exact phraseology of it with a fluency that indicated to his captive that this was not the first time the old rascal had had occasion to negotiate with English relatives for the ransom of a kinsman. Baines demurred when he saw that the letter was addressed to the consul at Algiers, saying that it would require the better part of a year to get the money back to him but the sheik would not listen to Baines' plan to send a messenger directly to the nearest coast town, and from there communicate with the nearest cable state, sending the Honorable Morrison's request for funds straight to his own solicitors. No, the sheik was cautious and wary. He knew his own plan had worked well in the past. In the other were too many untried elements. He was in no hurry for the money. He could wait a year, or two years if necessary, but it should not require over six months. He turned to one of the Arabs who had been standing behind him and gave the fellow instructions in relation to the prisoner. Baines could not understand the words spoken in Arabic, but the jerk of the thumb toward him showed that he was the subject of conversation. The Arab addressed by the sheik bowed to his master and beckoned Baines to follow him. The Englishman looked toward the sheik for confirmation. The latter nodded impatiently, and the Honorable Morrison rose and followed his guide toward a native hut which lay close beside one of the outside goatskin tents. In the dark, stifling interior his guard led him, then stepped to the doorway, and called to a couple of black boys squatting before their own huts. They came promptly, and in accordance with the Arab's instructions, bound Bain's wrists and ankles securely. The Englishman objected strenuously, but as neither the blacks nor the Arab could understand a word he said, his pleas were wasted. Having bound him, they left the hut. The Honorable Morrison lay for a long time, contemplating the frightful future which awaited him during the long months which must intervene before his friends learned of his predicament and could get succor to him. Now he hoped that they would send the ransom. He would gladly pay all that he was worth to be out of this hole. At first it had been his intention to cable his solicitors to send no money, but to communicate with the British West African authorities and have an expedition sent to his aid. His patrician nose wrinkled in disgust as his nostrils were assailed by the awful stench of the hut. The nasty grasses upon which he lay exuded the effluvium of sweaty bodies, of decayed animal matter, and of offal, but worse was yet to come. He had lain in the uncomfortable position in which they had thrown him, but for a few minutes, when he became distinctly conscious of an acute itching sensation upon his hands, his neck, and scalp. He wriggled to a sitting posture, horrified and disgusted. The itching rapidly extended to other parts of his body. It was torture, and his hands were bound securely at his back. He tugged and pulled at his bonds until he was exhausted, but not entirely without hope for he was sure that he was working enough slack out of the knots to eventually permit of his withdrawing one of his hands. Night came. They brought him neither food nor drink. He wondered if they expected him to live on nothing for a year. 
The bites of the vermin grew less annoying, though not less numerous. The Honorable Morrison saw a ray of hope in this indication of future immunity through inoculation. He still worked weakly at his bonds, and then the rats came. If the vermin were disgusting, the rats were terrifying. They scurried over his body, squealing and fighting. Finally, one commenced to chew at one of his ears. With an oath, the Honorable Morrison struggled to a sitting posture. The rats retreated. He worked his legs beneath him and came to his knees, and then, by superhuman effort, rose to his feet. There he stood, reeling drunkenly, dripping with cold sweat. God, he muttered, what have I done to deserve? He paused. What had he done? He thought of the girl in another tent in that accursed village. He was getting his deserts. He set his jaws firmly with the realization. He would never complain again. At that moment he became aware of voices raised angrily in the goatskin tent close beside the hut in which he lay. One of them was a woman's. Could it be Miriam's? The language was probably Arabic. He could not understand a word of it, but the tones were hers. He tried to think of some way of attracting her attention to his near presence. If she could remove his bonds, they might escape together, if she wished to escape. That thought bothered him. He was not sure of her status in the village. If she were the petted child of the powerful sheik, then she would probably not care to escape. He must know, definitely. At the bungalow he had often heard Miriam sing God Save the King, as my dear accompanied her on the piano. Raising his voice, he now hummed the tune. Immediately he heard Miriam's voice from the tent. She spoke rapidly. "'Good-bye, Morrison,' she cried. "'If God is good, I shall be dead before morning, for if I still live I shall be worse than dead after to-night.' Then he heard an angry exclamation in a man's voice, followed by the sounds of a scuffle. Baines went white with horror. He struggled frantically again with his bonds. They were giving. A moment later one hand was free. It was but the work of an instant then to loose the other. Stooping, he untied the rope from his ankles. Then he straightened and started for the hut doorway, bent on reaching Miriam's side. As he stepped out into the night, the figure of a huge black rose and barred his progress. When speed was required of him, Korak depended upon no other muscles than his own, and so it was that the moment Tantor had landed him safely upon the same side of the river as lay the village of the Sheik, the ape-man deserted his bulky comrade and took to the trees in a rapid race toward the south and the spot where the Swede had told him Miriam might be. It was dark when he came to the palisade, strengthened considerably since the day that he had rescued Miriam from her pitiful life within its cruel confines. No longer did the giant tree spread its branches above the wooden rampart, but ordinary man-made defenses were scarce considered obstacles by Korak. Loosening the rope at his waist, he tossed the noose over one of the sharpened posts that composed the palisade. A moment later his eyes were above the level of the obstacle, taking in all within their range beyond. There was no one in sight close by, and Korak drew himself to the top and dropped lightly to the ground within the enclosure. Then he commenced his stealthy search of the village. First toward the Arab tents he made his way, sniffing and listening. He passed behind them searching for some sign of Miriam. Not even the wild Arab curs heard his passage 
so silently he went, a shadow passing through shadows. The odor of tobacco told him that the Arabs were smoking before their tents. The sound of laughter fell upon his ears, and then from the opposite side of the village came the notes of a once familiar tune, God Save the King. Korak halted in perplexity. Who might it be? The tones were those of a man. He recalled the young Englishman he had left on the river trail, and who had disappeared before he returned. A moment later there came to him a woman's voice in reply. It was Miriam's, and the killer quickened into action, slunk rapidly in the direction of these two voices. The evening meal over, Miriam had gone to her pallet in the women's quarters of the sheik's tent, a little corner screened off in the rear by a couple of priceless Persian rugs to form a partition. In these quarters she had dwelt with Mabunu alone, for the sheik had no wives. Nor were conditions altered now after the years of her absence. She and Mabunu were alone in the women's quarters. Presently the sheik came and parted the rugs. He glared through the dim light of the interior. "'Miriam,' he called, "'come hither.' The girl arose and came into the front of the tent. There the light of a fire illuminated the interior. She saw Ali ben Kaden, the sheik's half-brother, squatted upon a rug, smoking. The sheik was standing. The sheik and Ali ben Kaden had had the same father, but Ali ben Kaden's mother had been a slave, a West Coast negress. Ali ben Kaden was old and hideous and almost black. His nose and part of one cheek were eaten away by disease. He looked up and grinned as Miriam entered. The sheik jerked his thumb toward Ali ben Kaden and addressed Miriam. "'I am getting old,' he said. "'I shall not live much longer. Therefore I have given you to Ali ben Kaden, my brother.' That was all. Ali ben Kaden rose and came toward her. Miriam shrank back, horrified. The man seized her wrist. "'Come,' he commanded, and dragged her from the sheik's tent and to his own. After they had gone, the sheik chuckled. "'When I send her north in a few months,' he soliloquized, "'they will know the reward for slaying the son of the sister of Amor ben Kator.' And in Ali ben Kaden's tent Miriam pleaded and threatened, but all to no avail. The hideous old half-caste spoke soft words at first, but when Miriam loosed upon him the vials of her horror and loathing, he became enraged, and rushing upon her seized her in his arms. Twice she tore away from him, and in one of the intervals during which she managed to elude him she heard Bain's voice humming the tune that she knew was meant for her ears. At her reply Ali ben Kaden rushed upon her once again. This time he dragged her back into the rear apartment of his tent, where three negresses looked up in stolid indifference to the tragedy being enacted before them. As the Honorable Morrison saw his way blocked by the huge frame of the giant black, his disappointment and rage filled him with a bestial fury that transformed him into a savage beast. With an oath he leaped upon the man before him, the momentum of his body hurling the black to the ground. There they fought, the black to draw his knife, the white to choke the life from the black. Bain's fingers shut off the cry for help that the other would have been glad to voice, but presently the negro succeeded in drawing his weapon, and an instant later Baines felt the sharp steel in his shoulder. Again and again the weapon fell. The white man removed one hand from its choking grip upon the black throat. 
He felt around upon the ground beside him, searching for some missile, and at last his fingers touched a stone and closed upon it. Raising it above his antagonist's head, the Honorable Morrison drove home a terrific blow. Instantly the black relaxed, stunned. Twice more Baines struck him. Then he leaped to his feet and ran for the goatskin tent from which he had heard the voice of Miriam in distress. But before him was another, naked but for his leopard skin and his loincloth, Korak the killer slunk into the shadows at the back of Ali ben Kaden's tent. The half-caste had just dragged Miriam into the rear chamber as Korak's sharp knife slit a six-foot opening in the tent wall, and Korak, tall and mighty, sprang through upon the astonished visions of the inmates. Miriam saw and recognized him the instant that he entered the apartment. Her heart leaped in pride and joy at the sight of the noble figure for which it had hungered for so long. "'Korak!' she cried. "'Miriam!' He uttered the single word as he hurled himself upon the astonished Ali ben Kaden. The three negresses leaped from their sleeping mats, screaming. Miriam tried to prevent them from escaping, but before she could succeed the terrified blacks had darted through the hole in the tent wall made by Korak's knife and were gone screaming through the village. The killer's fingers closed once upon the throat of the hideous Ali. Once his knife plunged into the putrid heart, and Ali ben Kaden lay dead upon the floor of his tent. Korak turned toward Miriam, and at the same moment a bloody and disheveled apparition leaped into the apartment. "'Morrison!' cried the girl. Korak turned and looked at the newcomer. He had been about to take Miriam in his arms, forgetful of all that might have transpired since last he had seen her. Then the coming of the young Englishman recalled the scene he had witnessed in the little clearing, and a wave of misery swept over the ape-man. Already from without came the sounds of the alarm that the three negresses had started. Men were running toward the tent of Ali ben Kaden. There was no time to be lost. "'Quick!' cried Korak, turning toward Baines, who had scarce yet realized whether he was facing a friend or foe. "'Take her to the palisade, following the rear of the tents. Here is my rope. With it you can scale the wall and make your escape.' "'But you, Korak!' cried Miriam. "'I will remain,' replied the ape-man. "'I have business with the sheik.' Miriam would have demurred, but the killer seized them both by the shoulders and hustled them through the slit wall and out into the shadows beyond. "'Now run for it,' he admonished, and turned to meet and hold those who were pouring into the tent from the front. The ape-man fought well, fought as he had never fought before, but the odds were too great for victory though he won that which he most craved, time for the Englishman to escape with Miriam. Then he was overwhelmed by numbers, and a few minutes later, bound and guarded, he was carried to the sheik's tent. The old man eyed him in silence for a long time. He was trying to fix in his own mind some form of torture that would gratify his rage and hatred toward this creature who twice had been the means of his losing possession of Miriam. The killing of Ali ben Kaden caused him little anger. Always had he hated the hideous son of his father's hideous slave. The blow that this naked white warrior had once struck him added fuel to his rage. He could think of nothing adequate to the creature's offense. And as he sat there looking upon Korak, the silence was broken by the trumpeting of an elephant in the jungle beyond the palisade. A half-smile touched Korak's lips. He turned his head a trifle in the direction from which the sound had come, and then there broke from his lips a low, weird call. 
One of the blacks guarding him struck him across the mouth with the shaft of his spear, but none there knew the significance of his cry. In the jungle Tantor cocked his ears as the sound of Korak's voice fell upon them. He approached the palisade, and lifting his trunk above it, sniffed. Then he placed his head against the wooden logs and pushed. But the palisade was strong and only gave a little to the pressure. In the sheik's tent the sheik rose at last, and pointing toward the bound captive, turned to one of his lieutenants. "'Burn him,' he commanded. "'At once. The stake is set.' The guard pushed Korak from the sheik's presence. They dragged him to the open space in the center of the village, where a high stake was set in the ground. It had not been intended for burnings, but offered a convenient place to tie up refractory slaves that they might be beaten, oftentimes until death relieved their agonies. To this stake they bound Korak. Then they brought brush and piled about him, and the sheik came and stood by that he might watch the agonies of his victim. But Korak did not winch, even after they had fetched a brand, and the flames had shot up among the dry tinder. Once, then, he raised his voice in the low call that he had given in the sheik's tent, and now from beyond the palisade came again the trumpeting of an elephant. Old Tantor had been pushing at the palisade in vain. The sound of Korak's voice calling him, and the scent of man, his enemy, filled the great beast with rage and resentment against the dumb barrier that held him back. He wheeled and shuffled back a dozen paces. Then he turned, lifted his trunk, and gave voice to a mighty, roaring, trumpet call of anger, lowered his head, and charged like a huge battering ram of flesh and bone and muscle straight for the mighty barrier. The palisade sagged and splintered to the impact, and through the breach rushed the infuriated bull. Korak heard the sounds that the others heard, and he interpreted them as the others did not. The flames were creeping closer to him, when one of the blacks, hearing a noise behind him, turned to see the enormous bulk of Tantor lumbering toward them. The man screamed and fled, and then the bull-elephant was among them, tossing negroes and Arabs to right and left, as he tore through the flames he feared to the side of the comrade he loved. The sheik, calling orders to his followers, ran to his tent to get his rifle. Tantor wrapped his trunk about the body of Korak and the stake to which it was bound and tore it from the ground. The flames were searing his sensitive hide, sensitive for all its thickness, so that in his frenzy to both rescue his friend and escape the hated fire he had all but crushed the life from the ape-man. Lifting his burden high above his head, the giant beast wheeled and raced for the breach that he had just made in the palisade. The sheik, rifle in hand, rushed from his tent directly into the path of the maddened brute. He raised his weapon and fired once. The bullet missed its mark, and Tantor was upon him, crushing him beneath those gigantic feet as he raced over him, as you and I might crush out the life of an ant that chanced to be in our pathway. And then, bearing his burden carefully, Tantor the elephant entered the blackness of the jungle. End of chapter 25